Let's do it. Hit. The scotch on the rocks. Please, any scotch will do. As long as it's not a blend, of course. Uh, single malt. Blend Olivet, Blend Fittick, perhaps. Maybe a Blend Gow. Any blend. I'm thirsty. I want a beer. What about you? You want a beer? Just a drink. A martini. Shake and not stir. I've been called Pip. I just want to point out uh, to my co-host here that I selected the Great Expectations version where he is not Pip. No. He's Finn. Which is cool Finn. again, right? Stranger Things? Isn't one of those kids it's named a, Finn? Uh, I think you're confusing your Stranger Things with Star Wars, my friend. I thought one of the kids, uh, the, the actual actors, was named Finn, so that's like oh, a cool oh, name. No, oh, maybe, maybe. I don't know. That could be the case. However, uh, as I said in our last uh, time we recorded, Great Expectations was not cool when we were 14, 15 years old. This was required oh. reading, summer reading, <laughs> uh, for our uh, AP English class, and I believe it was, this came out basically like a month or two after, after our mm-hmm. English semester was over. Uh, which probably for our uh, whatever tests we had to take, it's probably good. We didn't have this to rely on because this is a modernized <laughs> version set in uh, Florida. So I can shout out. I see why uh, Superfan Hyro is already for this one in the bag for it. Uh, where Ethan Hawke plays not Pip but Finn, who is a uh, poor kid uh, who is uh, what would you say adopted for like Saturday visits just to make a rich old depressed lady feel better about herself yeah yeah it wasn't really uh spelled out it appears that maybe i don't know maybe uh finn's older sister thought that maybe there would just be some good financial courtesies if they were in good graces maybe it should be more spelled out maybe that's the problem with modernizing something like this where it's like all right i'm gonna send my i realize it's older sister but still basically my adopted child yeah go over to this strange lady's house this rundown mansion and amuse her (laughs) just go on play dates with this crazy senior citizen yeah the roof's ripped open there's plants going growing crazy everywhere chicka boom at the end of almost every sentence yeah, her her love of the song Basami Mucho is disturbing. Uh, <clears throat> that would be very problematic in, I don't know, even in the quote-unquote 80s, I guess, when that was supposed to be taking place or, or whatever. But uh, I'll, preface it, I'll preface before we get into the meat of your discussion that this is going to be the biggest problem I have probably with this movie is that there are some stories that cannot be modernized. And... Just because the the mechanics of that story are so ingrained in the the time period that they were, I guess, written for, that it just does not translate unless you find a super creative way of of changing it. And you you can't just pluck it from that timeline and say, oh, we're going to do it modern, and it makes sense. Because <laughs> it does not make sense why this kid's going over to uh, this character's house every Saturday. Now that being said, I do and I I seen this um I think I saw it on video shortly after it came out uh and had never saw a reason to rewatch it again. Uh I, as I said in the last episode Hyro seems to like this version. I did watch the I think it's 2015 it's a much newer version of Great Expectations mm-hmm. which was 
to what your point, Josh, it was like trying to set it in its own time. I felt sort of worked better. However, mm-hmm. um, it opens with, and it, it sort of, I guess, absolves itself by having this uh, narration that they added in <laughs> late into the editing to try to cobble this together of uh, this Pip, Finn here, saying that he's not going to retell the story the way it happened, but sort of how he remembers it. So it has this dreamlike quality, the direction here. like it's, uh, And it looks cool. It's a cool looking movie. I mean, anytime you get to uh, have Robert De Niro, you know, enter <laughs> stage left, by just hanging out underwater in shallow water and just opening his eyes and then choking a child. I'm like, okay, this is a really cool way for this convict to announce You're himself. Selling me. You're selling me early, movie. Yeah. It, it reminded yeah. me of it, it reminded me of how offers mm. come to know Nasty Hellcat. Our mm. first meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah, involved yeah. the dressing room and sliding up under the door or something similar to that. Josh has his own <laughs> Me Too story, apparently, with Nasty Hellcat. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Left out of the pizza party in the uh, bathroom. <laughs> Jared, that's your introduction. Uh, any any history other than the uh, horrible high school reading experience with this version, or I guess any other film version of Great Expectations? Um, the only thing that I really took into it was just the, the, the amount of dread that I remember having whenever we were assigned this uh, book back in AP English. And I remember having such a hard time making it through that book, much the same way as you uh, had with Paddington. I'd have to read like five pages and then put it down. Lord. That's good. This this runs circles. Paddington runs circles around That's an excellent, excellent comparison, Jared. Please continue (laughs) at length. Well, I mean, I'm I'm on record saying as I liked Paddington. Paddington. I'm just saying the uh, methods are the same. Edited Um, out. Continue. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, it wasn't any easier to watch it than it was to read it, in my opinion. Okay, so the updated Uh, setting, the visuals, Robert De Niro, none of this sold you on it. Well, it it looked pretty, but it was very um, hollow as far as the uh, motivations for the characters. And like Josh was saying, that was one of the thoughts I had when I was watching the movies. Like this, the, the motivations and decisions that all these characters are making just don't make sense in a modern setting, like how they are. And, you know, especially quote, Miss Havisham, uh, grooming her daughter or whoever, was it her daughter? In the book, it was a, uh, adopted daughter. I don't adopted. think they ever really defined it in the movie. I think it's just another skeevy play date character that just kind of <laughs> comes yeah. in another child. Yeah. Uh, grooming a sort of heartbreaker of a woman since I guess she was so bitter at all men that just, it screams of something, you know, some sort of Victorian era sort of method of revenge. I don't know if that's, did that come through for either one of you? I remember in high school, that was something I got in trouble for, for raising my hand in class saying, if she's so rich, why didn't she find herself a hot new stud just to like play with <laughs> and like get your revenge on men in another way. Like just, cast them aside, throw them away, be a sugar mama of sorts. Yeah. Uh, And to hit the nail on the head that we keep going back to, modernizing it, it makes even less sense because no one would judge her for just having some boy toy around, someone that's, you know, 40 years her junior would be fine. And actually, that's very much so how men are portrayed, and maybe some men do, like when they're kind of hateful, I guess, towards the, uh, maybe due to some bad blood from their past with, you know, relationships gone awry, you know, we see them portrayed as, okay, they're just going to treat women like objects and just, you know, buy sex, buy women and everything. So that, yeah, that would have been a perfectly <laughs> good option 
for the Havisham character. Now, as far as getting to, I guess the the romance, because if you go back, uh, and I didn't go back and you know do much research here. I certainly didn't open up uh, any of you know the Dickens novel to try to get the tone right or anything. And uh, I didn't. I was going to say I didn't even go back and like rewatch the trailer, but it's it's stuck in my mind uh, because there's a song that plays. I think the band was called Pulp. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's like during the painting sequence, which man, but, but did they have bad timing with that as far as opening like two months after Titanic where it's like, let me draw you. <laughs> I was like, Oh yes, this, <laughs> this again. Um, I remember that trailer because I was like, Oh, I've heard, I remember hearing that. And the only time I, cause I'd never followed the band, uh, was for the, the trailer for this movie, which sold it as like, um, like the thawing of an ice person princess played here by Gwyneth Paltrow through like sexy acts. Like, let me draw you naked. And it's like, mm. that'll get you, you'll warm up to me now because I, there, I guess there's a Not little that. bit, there's a, there, they hint at that because, you know, clearly she, uh, uh, even their first like sexual encounter, it's like, <laughs> here's a kind of creepy shot of her, like an extreme close up of her, like underwear under her skirt where she's like moving his hand up there. And <laughs> I thought, come on, Alfonso, what are you doing here? Like, this is... <laughs> I know Ethan Hawke's got the, uh, Ethan Hawke's got the really terrible wig and he's supposed to be playing a teenager. Oh, my but, goodness. but if I am imagining these characters as teenagers, a little boundaries, please. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see that. Um, but yeah, the, the film itself, uh, maybe it's holding on to that, the Victorian sensibilities, uh, you know, this character, every time, even when she's prancing around naked, she just cuts him off and is like, nope, gotta go back to my fiance, Hank Azaria, who is, <laughs> boy, that's real threatening and hot, a, a, a poo from Quickie Mark. <laughs> being cuckolded none of this you know none of this is eyes wide shut or uh, uh another film we talked about in war machine versus war horse like closer where you have like clive owen and jude law natalie portman julia roberts all those people battling it out it's a bunch of pretty people and you believe like when clive owen says i'm gonna go out and have sex with your girlfriend uh that's a threat hank azaria <laughs> that's a dull blade <laughs> <laughs> poor hank azaria <laughs> Oh, I hope he doesn't listen. <laughs> I hope he does. <laughs> I hope we get an unsubscribe and a bad review from Hank Azaria. I was an early adopter of Sober Cinema, but no more. Because <laughs> no Mike did five minutes <laughs> on cuckolding me. <laughs> uh, Josh, well, your you thoughts on this Charles Dickens classic? <laughs> Okay, so, you know, going back to what I said earlier, some of that stuff, it is, it's hard to modernize it and for it to be very easy to buy. And and that's some of the the trouble right there. Um, It's even kind of hard to believe that uh, a female character would go as far as to, like, enjoy some of the pleasures of pursuing a relationship but then stopping short and being like, no, 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 I've been trained that this is bad and I'm supposed to hate men and to torture them. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to like, you know, just abruptly leave and leave you hanging. Uh, th- that's just a bit over, overly dramatic. I mean, if, and, and again, I mean, that's, I guess that's some of the stuff they were basing upon the book, but maybe it would be a little bit more believable that somebody who has been, I mean, in the original book, you, Pip goes off, 
he goes to some dude's house to become a quote-unquote gentleman. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of weird, you know, stuff from the early 1800s that I don't think really translates very well. And this is that's replaced in this version by fame, basically. Like, yeah, if he can become yeah. famous in the New York art world, then he'll become a gentleman. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I could, I could kind of glaze over some of it. I'll say this. All of the uh, the early stuff in the films for like showing the characters as children, and even the you, you alluded to the terrible Ethan Hawke wig, uh, even the time period of that stuff, all of it felt very stale to me and just did not work. Uh, I started getting into it a little bit more and actually just kind of giving into the movie, and enjoying it once it was the quote unquote modern, you know, the the, the current time of the film. But uh, those earlier timelines, I, I just felt like that was very rough. I didn't really enjoy any of that. That's interesting. I mean, I'm only, as I said, doing no research here. But uh, I wanted to see, <clears throat> like on Wikipedia, uh, how this was sort of positioned as far as, you know, if they really pushed that. Coming out of like the, the Bosler and Romeo and Juliet, if they were pushing the, the modernization of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the other films have gone back to the, the period setting. And uh, one of the things here under critical reception was uh, Roger Ebert. Uh, gave it three out of four stars and wrote great expectations begins as a great movie. I was spellbound by the first 30 minutes, but ends is only a good one. Uh, and I think that's because the screenplay by Mitch Glazer too closely follows the romantic line. So you had the, you had the exact opposite viewpoint. And I actually, you know, as I said, doing no research, it made me want to read the full review there as far as like you were spellbound by the first 30 minutes. Cause that, <laughs> and maybe because I know too much about the, I, I read a book from the producer that talked about kind of what a mess this was to like get it to its like completed film. Like they mm-hmm. had to add the voiceover late. They had uh, David Mamet came in and did the dialogue for the voiceover. He had a lot of problems, uh, with Koran here who, uh, God love him, um, in the book, um, and I'm forgetting the name of it here, but they actually, it, uh, I think they made it to a movie with Bruce Willis. Um, and Robert De Niro called uh, What Just Happened. That may be the name of the book. Um, but in it, they were talking about the making of this film, and the director uh, had come off a little princess and was making like his first like big Hollywood movie. And all he was concerned about when he went to the producer was, uh, get me more money. You told me I was going to get a lot of money. This is a Hollywood movie. I want money. Lots of money. <laughs> and I was just like, you know what? <laughs> as much as I uh, don't really care much for this film, uh, it did that puts it in a new light for me where that guy, it's like that guy, it's like he was robbing a bank. It's like this was his one heist. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't know if he was going to direct another big Hollywood movie again. <laughs> so give me as much money as possible. That's uh, my long way of saying, uh, this is now one of my favorite, uh, film directions of all time. Give this man an Oscar for just demanding money left and right every time it's producer. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, and, and I think another criticism I would make probably between this. It's not fair to compare completely with the book and stuff, but I'll just there's a lot of things about the story of the book that again, going back to that, it works in the time period that it does, but also the reason why it works as a story and why this doesn't is with this movie you have to buy hook line and sinker that like after just one and two encounters from their youth. I mean, we know he spent a lot of time with the character, but they, they only show us a couple of like impactful encounters between the the romantic kiss couple. at the water fountain that's what does it the for kiss him. at the water fountain and then you know the the other sexual encounter that you mentioned upskirt and stuff and it's like from there it's it's like we're, we're supposed to believe that like they are going to be obsessed with one another like years 
you know, like a decade later. That's all it took. It's one panty shot. <laughs> I guess so. Finn's family and- is too, too poor for dial-up porn connection. There. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at least with the book, I don't even know if the book really felt like that much of a romance. Like, it was more about, like, the journey of Pip's character, and it was a little bit more of just an obsession of trying to win her. But I didn't really feel like what what I can remember of the story. I didn't feel like it was a quote unquote romance. And I felt like she was one thing on his checklist to feel yeah, like a man. Yeah, like being and, and, being rich, uh, being well respected in their mm-hmm. you know, com- community. Uh, that was on there alongside her. Uh, and this right. there's a whole sequence where he just he drunkenly screams. He thinks uh, out her window that everything he's ever done has been because of her. night all of my dreams came true and like all happy endings it was a tragedy of my own device for i'd succeeded i had cut myself loose from joe from the past from the gulf from poverty i had invented myself i'd done it cruelly but i'd done it i was free Yeah, yeah, that that right there is probably the definition of my problem with the movie. I just I don't buy I don't buy this love story, the romance. I, that's actually my least favorite part of the movie. Uh, the the best parts coming from the supporting roles of Chris Cooper and Robert De Niro. They're both their yeah. characters are quite enjoyable. I would agree with that. And the, I would the two father figure representatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that was a misstep, certainly. I think Joe is probably the only likable character out of anybody that was in the movie. Oh, you did? Uh, hmm. Robert De Niro, by the end of it, I thought was very likable. Uh, He's still a murderer, though. <laughs> well, Jared, you're concerned. He murders like a Jared. gangster. I mean, what do you care? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Like you rescind that your your complaint, or you're you're now p- taking up for uh, like Italian mafia guys, like. They deserve well, life too. Just, uh, maybe he was just the bookkeeper for the mafia or something. Maybe, uh, maybe he wasn't a violent maf- mafioso. You don't know. You don't know which one he killed. <laughs> it was probably the Jared of the mafia <laughs> that got killed. That's why Jared's so defensive. <laughs> the guy was just standing in the corner, like <laughs> not doing anything. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that what I like most about the Dunero character, Jared, and you're right. I don't know much about him. Um, is I'll just say that he's probably had an extremely hard life that his main quest uh, of, you know, going up against the mob and then getting this money, which I'm sure he did not, you know, <laughs> he didn't earn legally. This is all a life of crime and a life on the run is just to give this one kid, like probably the only person in his life that ever did anything nice for him. Uh, he gives him everything he has. And I, I do like that. That's a traditional concept, but I like it. I like that. Um, he thinks, you know, you look at this guy, the way he talks and what he's dealing with, that he would have any interest in this kid's art. 
this sort of like arrogant little asshole that wants to rule the New York <laughs> art scene. And he's like, that's really cool. You can draw good for you. Like, I like that picture of me. <laughs> here's, here's another few million to, to, to bunk up on. And why don't you come to Paris with me? You got to go to Paris. I don't know. I found him amusing. Maybe he's just, but on the other hand, he's probably just as, you know, he's got just as much of a one track mind as the Ethan Hawke character. It's all for like one person. So Chris Cooper, Maybe Jared's a little bit right. Maybe Chris Cooper is the only one that's likable in a realistic way. Oh yeah, as far as his performance went, De Niro was fine. He was probably one of the few uh, characters that I had an interest in. But yeah, in a real world sense, he wasn't a good person. I like that uh, tux that Cooper wears. Yeah, to the, yeah. the art show. <laughs> Very stylish. He is the one uh, selfless character. Like his motives are completely selfless. I mean, he's the father figure, and it's not. <laughs> not a blood relative whatsoever. Only, you know, he only knows him because it was the, you know, he was dating his sister, you know, and, and she left. And so, yeah, he is, he is the, the, the most genuine character of all of them. Just his motives are completely good. The sister who, and I did not have this pre-planned. Uh, I knew it. I knew you did. You love you some Kim Dickens, man. Both <laughs> movies this, this week. I did not. I remember, no, I did remember her. Uh, from Zero Effect, and to be fair, she is a much more prominent part. She is like the central, you know, she's the cause and effect here of what the crime that's happening in Zero Effect. But yeah, she popped up in Great Expectations, which, uh, of course, I watched second because uh, I went Zero <laughs> Effect first, and then was like, all right, let's take my medicine, go Great Expectations. <laughs> uh, yeah, and she's in a, what TV? Was she in Deadwood? I feel like she's been in more more TV. Uh, yeah, she's been her. Lost. Uh, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's one of those people that like. Once you see her a couple times, you start to realize look, she's like uh, a that person. Mm. You know, like, oh, I don't know her name, but she's in this and she's in that. And this well, and that. January 98, she's all over the place with the mm. uh, the uh, the movie roles here. So this is our forgotten film, uh, which, Jared, do you know what, what the uh, budget box office was for Zero Effect? Five million dollars. Was that what it made or that's what it cost? That was the uh, budget for the film was five. It only grossed uh, a little bit less than two. Okay, good. Uh, at the very least, <laughs> with me doing no research, I'm not pick- picking a forgotten film. It's like budget of five million, gross three hundred million. <laughs> I'd go, Mike. <laughs> really forgotten there. That, uh, that may only apply to Avatar, which <laughs> seemingly just dropped out of pop culture um, for for a decade, and yet it's like the number one movie of all time. Because it sucks. Uh, it's not very good. And it brought us <laughs> it brought us 3D that we're still not totally shy of from theater. So I hate it even more for that. But uh, this one is directed by Jake Kasdan, who I had to look up, see if he's still doing stuff. And he just had a big hit with the Jumanji sequel. So he's mm-hmm. pretty much gone to broad comedies. He did Bad Teacher and Sex Tape. Uh, this one, I guess, is broad-ish. I mean, it's high concept. You got Bill Pullman, who is... The world's greatest detective, uh, greatest PI, and it's because he tries to ma- uh, maintain total objectivity. And to do so, that means he doesn't interact with the world really at all. <laughs> and if he does, he's undercover with various aliases where he's got bedhead and all of his like <laughs> driver's licenses, which I have to admit I took a couple screenshots of. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna put this on our Instagram account. I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna promote our episode. This just gonna be just a, a nameless, <laughs> captionless picture under sober cinema. Um, this this is a favorite of mine from that time period. I think I discovered this on VHS when I worked at the video store. And I like Bill Pullman. I like Ben Stiller at the time. And so I was like, 
I've not heard of this. What is it? And it felt like a cool little indie movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I like PI stories and I like that he's just a complete dick. And I really like seeing Ben Stiller have to put up with his nonsense <laughs> repeatedly. Their business equals their business. We're not involved. And it has nothing to do with us. Do you believe that? Yeah. We're the good guys. Wait, what are you talking about? There aren't any good guys. You realize that, don't you? I mean, you realize there aren't evil guys and innocent guys. It's just, it's just, it's just a bunch of guys. You know, he has a face where he dies inside. I don't think there's like five straight <laughs> scenes of him dying. Just his facial response. So I'm, I'm actually a fan of this one. Uh, what about you two? Had you seen or heard of Zero Effect before this podcast? Uh, I had actually never heard of it before. This was the absolute first time that um, I'd ever heard it mentioned. Uh, after watching it, I wish that was uh, the opposite. I ended up really, really liking this movie. But I will say that with one caveat, that uh, I think it could have been actually better than what it was. Um, I was really, really digging Bill Pullman and how off-the-wall eccentric he was at the beginning of the film. You kind of lose that as the film goes on, which I mean, he loses his ob- objectivity as right. well. So yeah. um, it's at least explainable. But I still, I really, I really liked. Um, you know, he's walking through the kitchen taking amphetamines like it's candy and a giant bag of pretzels, and Ben Stiller trying to process all this. It's it really good comedy. I thought it really worked. A nasty Hellcat biography. I was, I was about to say, Jared would like he would like the character that's totally alone behind a wall of computers, uh, shouting at Ben Stiller. Like I assume we do. Um, I, I did like the one shot because uh, Ben Stiller's coming home while he's playing guitar and uh, mm. cowboy boots and sweatpants, and as Ben Stiller makes through <laughs> makes his way through this labyrinth of locks to get in, uh, yeah. and he's got a fridge full of tab, and then uh, Ben Stiller, I guess, has one diet coke that he's squirreled away for himself. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you somewhat, Jared, the relationship, you have such fun with these two that when he becomes more involved and we mentioned Kim Dickens, like he's going to become romantically involved, uh, with the person that he sees as the main threat to his character who is being blackmailed, uh, Ryan O'Neill, this rich guy. And, uh, so to get closer to her, he has to figure her out, but then he starts to fall in love with her. And of course you lose a little bit of Ben Stiller, although he has one great scene, uh, where the uh, the businessman that's hired him uh, tries to buy him off, and yeah. when he tries to like muscle past him, Ben Stiller says, "I will shoot you. I have a gun and everything. I will shoot you." <laughs> and I like that. He he emphasizes that I have the equipment to do so. I have a gun, so therefore I can shoot well, you. After dealing with Bill Pullman, I'm sure he has no tolerance for anybody else's shit. It's up to his uh, neck having to deal with Bill Pullman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what about you, Josh? Any experience with Zero Effect? No, uh, this this was a new and you laid on us here for me. Uh, and it definitely has that uh, good 90s vibe to it. Like you can tell this was a movie that was made in the 90s, but in that fun way. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of Pullman and Stiller, like yourself. Uh, this was obviously before Stiller hit it real big. Um, it was just going to so be he, uh, about six months shy. There's something about Mary made him like, it became like the, uh, the top comedy dog for a few years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, he was still kind of taking on more dramatic uh, roles uh, like this and reality bots and stuff. And giving uh, us the greatness that was the cable guy. The yeah, yeah. Love the cable guy. Love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kind of echoing what you all were saying, like I was 
digging all of the movie. Like I, I, I I'm very much into detective type films, especially. Uh, um, I, I would say this is unlike unlike uh, Great Expectations. This is a good example of taking something that feels like it could be old, such as like Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and modernizing it, and still kind of having that those those principles there, but but it being you know modernized. Uh, I was enjoying every bit of that. Let me jump in here. Do you, I think you just stumbled on something I hadn't thought of. Uh, do you think this movie is ahead of its time? And I'm thinking of like a lot of those like USA series was like really quirky lead characters and those procedurals. Cause I, one of the things I read on Wikipedia was he had, he shot a pilot for NBC in 2002 and it didn't get picked up or it was going to just be like the cases of Daryl zero. Oh, it was, it was a pilot for like a show from, of this movie four years, four years after the movie, he attempted to take it to TV and it reminded me, I was like, man, this character, uh, you think of something like house, those like dickish characters who are like mm-hmm. hyper smart, but have no social skills. This feels yeah. like, man, this would have been a long running series if it had come out in the mid two thousands. Uh, even yeah. now I could see this being like a Netflix series if they wanted to do this. Oh yeah. I mean, definitely that, that would have been ahead of its time because, if they were to pitch it now, you'd just be like, well, that's just another one of, mm-hmm. of many. But uh, if they could have gotten in before the other ones, it would have probably been a great success because I figured this movie probably just didn't get enough uh, advertising to probably you know get more viewers. But it, it would probably be more beloved if it was uh, seen by more. But yeah, I definitely think they're, they're playing off those old Sherlock Holmes tropes. And uh, – <laughs> It, it did dip for me when it started getting a little bit more focused on the relationship. I mean, I know they had to go there for the sake of the story, but they kind of strayed a little too much away from his quirkiness and, and some of the, the PI work when they, when they were doing that. So that, that was a little bit of a lull for me there towards the, the third act, you, you know, seeing him, uh, Bill Pullman's character with uh, Ken Dickens' character. I feel like we have a common theme on this episode where it's like <laughs> the romance bad. Uh, everyone should just be Miss Havisham and just stay <laughs> totally alone and objective in your, your mansion with all of your uh, tab to drink for yourself. <laughs> I think there is something to be said with a lot of films uh, that like romance doesn't need to be forced. Uh, if, if it's, if it's not organic to the story, which I won't say it's not organic here. It's just, they don't need to force as much of it because that's not the type of film we were enjoying for the first <laughs> hour or so that we were watching. We were enjoying the, the zaniness and, and that's what was making it so good. So I don't really want to see it devolve into a different type of film. That That's, that's not I mean, what that's, I that's was fair. buying into. I, I do buy into the relationship here because I feel like that's the only way this Daryl zero character played by Bill Pullman would ever become romantically involved with someone is he has a sure. line where he's to uh stiller to his assistant where he's like, I can't get a read on her. Like, I don't know what she's thinking. And most people it's like, he is, he is honed this craft of being able to give sort of any tell that you have, uh, any sort of scent, everything. He knows exactly what you're going to say next, that sort of thing. Uh, so I understood why he would. And since she's also the, the, the one that's committing this, this blackmail, that he would have good reason to be like interested in her to follow up on. And then, I mean, not to give anything away. So if anyone wants to check out this movie, I would say they should. But once you, once he has the aha moment, as far as how she's tied into the crime, I think it's natural for him to be sympathetic to why she's. Oh, doing yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I'm probably just kind of picking on the, 
a little bit of the execution, I guess. Like, it, it totally makes sense for the story. I just didn't buy into the uh, focusing so much on watching any of the relationship stuff, which there's not a whole lot of. I mean, that's just a little bit of a gripe, I guess. But Yeah, um, that's not to uh, take away from it at all, like not to take away from the enjoyment of watching the film. It was yeah, just yeah. like a, a nitpick of anything, nothing major about it to, to clarify. And I would kind of liken it to, you know, I was talking about Sherlock Holmes earlier. What's the what's the female characters? Is it Irene Adler or something like that? Uh, You're talking from the Sherlock series? Yeah, well, I mean, like, even from the original stories. But, yeah, I think that's the character that Rachel McAdams played in the the Guy Ritchie films. Uh, she was kind of supposed to be the uh, Sherlock Holmes equivalent, and he becomes taken with her. So, you know, it makes sense that they would go that route. Like you were saying, that she would be the type of character he would fall for. You know, if there was going to be anybody he would take up with, it would be her. So, uh, I, I yeah, I buy into the relationship. So it it doesn't take away from the film overall. It's just, I, once I buy into a zany, you know, fun character like Daryl Zero, I just want more of it. I guess I'm just a little bit greedy that way. I just, <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I think it's a it's a little bit of a fuller arc to have him you know develop an outside relationship because and because I'll agree with you both there is you could see like a couple more movies where it's just Pullman and Stiller just like a buddy comedy on the road mm-hmm. like solving yep. these crimes but if if you're just wanting one meal and you know since he tried to take this NBC to do those continuing like adventures or actually I think it was a prequel I think this was before this so it still would have had mm. the Stiller character in there. Um, this is your one shot to kind of have, uh, to have it bookended by him doing his, uh, his, uh, memoirs of like, you know, how he's the greatest detective, having those personal relationships. I, I, I dug them. Um, actually the best thing I can say about, um, like the, the Kim Dickens character is I don't feel like she's, she's not really written like sort of like the quirky, like romantic lead because all the no, quirks are provided no. by him she's pretty she's definitely like the, the straight man here and th- there's something about them together that i enjoyed watching uh watching them just trying to like almost like two two animals sort of like stalking each other in a way because one thing even on rewatch i never really know when she figures out exactly who he is or who he says mm-hmm. he's not if she if she was suspicious of him the whole time i can't really tell well you know there was like the they don't even spoon feed to you that she was testing him. But like when he comes to her place to do the taxes and she asks him about a certain, uh, uh, I can't remember the terminology, but a certain type of tax deduction, deduction. or something. What's and, that, uh, I was just saying, just, just oh, I thought, I thought you, that. I thought you had it. I was like, God, you are Daryl zero over there. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they don't explicitly play it up. Like she's like, aha, I got him or whatever. But, you definitely kind of can read between the lines like that she's testing him a little bit because mm-hmm. she don't fully trust what his motives are. So you start seeing right away that, oh, she's playing a game as well. And uh, and they even have the Daryl Zero character say things very matter-of-factly of like, oh, yeah, she's in on this or whatever, you know. And it's not like they had like a revelation scene of like, oh, there she is. Oh, snap. It's just, you know, he's like, Oh no no! I, yeah, I figured mm-hmm. that out yeah. just a little while ago. She's 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 in on it or whatever, you know, stuff like that. So it differs. Uh, it differs greatly from great expectations in that regard. Where you have the the Miss Havisham 
uh, stand in. And I apologize to our listeners because I know they changed the name uh, Dinsmore, but I just remember I have Havisham ingrained in my brain. Uh, yeah. Repeat to our Finn uh, character, like, I have trained her to be the heartbreaker, <laughs> and she will break your heart, and you'll love it. You'll love every minute of it. And it's like, <laughs> you know, uh, that's one problem with that story where you're like, man, you're fucking Ethan Hawke. Yeah, even when you're poor, you're out fishing, like doing manual labor in the sun, and you know you look cool, and you're drinking beer. Like you're gonna get laid, dude. You're gonna be just fine. <laughs> Stop it. And uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that until you said it, Josh. But having zero effect, not really play those things up. Just like, oh yeah, of course she's in on it. So moving on to the next thing. Yeah, they, yeah, it's right. just not uh, the romance, uh, the crime. None of it's really heavily dramatized in the way you would expect other than when he's sitting back writing his memoirs talking about how awesome he is which i like because <laughs> his day-to-day crime solving is like him on a treadmill like gassed trying to look like he's not gassed and just like him coming home saying like this exercise is killing me like it doesn't look fun you know it's it's him in his hotel room like in disgusting hotel room miserable because his best friend's leaving him uh he's alone uh but yeah when uh when he's on the case He's totally cool and collected. I mean, Stiller even says as much when he's introducing the character. And there's mm-hmm. a certain charm to that, to, to seeing like how both easy it is for the character and how hard it is. Just interact- Basically, just interacting with human beings is the hard part. I also sympathize with his having to write a memoir because he even says that, like, you know, I kept waiting for somebody to, you know, follow, uh, you know, in my footsteps and, like, write this about me because, you know, what I have to offer is so great, but my protege just doesn't you know, seem to <laughs> care, have the interest. You know, it, and I experienced the same thing with Jared. You know, he just <laughs> he doesn't seem to understand the excellence that lies on the other side of this microphone. He just you're completely on, ignores it. You're on a phone just like me, bud. We're all <laughs> equalized. <laughs> my computer crashed out this evening. Jared, you do have a, a role here as our uh, stat boy. So I, I asked you about the, uh, so this was not a box office success. What about Great Expectations? What, what were the numbers on that? It made a lot more money. It hmm. world's a dark place. A, Thank you, well, Robert De Niro. Twenty-five million dollar budget, and it uh, doubled, and then some. Fifty-five point five million. What about the uh, critic scores for these two? Did Zero Effect was it the critical darling, or was it also? Uh... <laughs> yeah, you know, Zero Effect wiped the floor with uh, great expectations as far as. Uh, Critic scores went. Uh, great expectations rang in today, thirty-eight percent for critics. Ooh, and zero effect was sixty-three percent with critics. Something that could have been a little bit higher. I agree. Yeah. Movies like this would need it to be higher to to get that yeah, that love yeah. and attention from audiences. I've not really read the criticisms on the film, but I don't. I mean, I couldn't tell you what was like we said, just that little tiny nitpick, but even that wouldn't be enough for me to rate the movie any lower. It's just a personal preference. Like I, I don't, I don't know. We have a, we have a lot of complaints about like movies today, like all having to be like blockbusters um, based upon existing mm-hmm. uh, properties and stuff. Zero effect is a very good example of the type of nineties like, film that I do miss. Like, we didn't know how good even, we had it back then. We yeah, really and, didn't. And I think you you said something about that being like considered an independent film. I don't think like in the nineties that was considered like an independent film. You'd watch something like that, and that was just a movie. <laughs> you know, that was just well, one just of the movies a fun that came out. Story like it's yeah, just two hours long, and then that's all you really I mean invest into it. Right, but it's fun. You know, time, though, too. 
and I, and you're, I'm I'm somebody that enjoys the summer blockbusters if, if you know if they're good. I, I'm not against that, but it, it is sad that like films like that, you know, they're few and far between. So I, I do miss those. It's a it's a perfectly good example of just some really good good movies. Well, I don't think we've uh, maintained objectivity uh, here. I think people know <laughs> <laughs> how we're going to come down with our concept of. Here's a film that was widely released and more successful and uh, great expectations, at least uh, more eyeballs got to see it, presumably, in its theatrical run. Uh, and then there's Zero Effect, which uh, we all really dug. So I think we're going to say this is the one that deserves – it deserves those eyeballs that great expectations got. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How about you, Jared? Tip. I want an explanation from Hyro. <laughs> Florida. Yeah. It's Florida. That's uh, that's all I can figure. I'm going to talk to Hyro directly. Super fan Hyro. Um, and also super fan Jason uh, as well. I haven't listened to either one of your top 10 lists for 2017. Um, Jason, I think, is a little bit more uh, objective, like Daryl Zero. I don't know <laughs> if he's going to put like seven Canadian films on there, maybe. But I am pretty damn skippy. Like I could put money on it right now. Having not listened to the True Romance Film Podcast, there's your promotion, Hyro. Uh, the the Florida Project made Hyro's list, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't seen that film either, so I don't know if it's you know good, bad, whatever. But I just know Hyro is going to have it on there, and it didn't matter what it was. It could have been Willem Dafoe <laughs> doing you know his version of Buffalo Bill for two hours, <laughs> and Hyro would have had it on there because it was called the Florida Project. <laughs> well, it's, you know. I'd have to. I'd be inclined to believe you because uh, Great Expectations, the film, actually wasn't all that kind of Florida. I mean, they were kind of playing <laughs> get it away up as, as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's like, "Oh, I hate Florida." Oh, but <laughs> from Florida, yeah, I, uh, I I like this idea of uh, Chris Cooper. Uh, Florida cinematic universe, like the adaptation character and this character, like that Chris Cooper is <laughs> he's always stuck in Florida. And you know what? He always seems like he's having a good time. He's the one that gets Florida right, Chris Cooper. Uh, I'm, I, you were up until you said always having a good time. And adaptation, Chris Cooper in Florida. And he like snorting that- like plant shit off Meryl Streep's ass. Like that's. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what more do you want, Josh? My goodness. <laughs> He's having no uh, okay time, I I'm guess. I'm sorry. I guess I, I was just remembering the scene where, like, he has teeth knocked out and, like, somebody died right beside him. I can't remember. Well. Uh, it was kind of a terrifying scene uh, otherwise i mean movie. there are reasons he's in the the fantasy version adaptation <laughs> he's snorting plant shit off meryl street's ass uh that sounds about the time to say give sober cinema a follow on twitter instagram <laughs> facebook at sober cinema please. <laughs> i'm just gonna leave josh saying please <laughs> I begin my examination of the method I always say that the essence of my work relies fundamentally on two basic principles, objectivity and observation, or the two obs, as I call them. My work relies on my ability to remain absolutely, purely objective, detached. I have mastered the fine art of detachment. And while it comes at some cost, this supreme objectivity is what makes me, I dare say, the greatest observer the world has ever known.